Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. at the Somerville campus and 11 a.m. at the North Charleston and Remount campuses. Thank you. We hope you are blessed through listening. We're starting a brand new series that I am very excited about. Uh, A lot has been said recently about the return of the Lord. When is Christ coming back? When is the end going to occur? And probably one of the books that talks about it the most, and uh, it's woven throughout the entire passage, that's First and Second Thessalonians. So we're actually going to do a study of First and Second Thessalonians, two incredible books that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. So let's stand together. We're going to look at chapter one this morning, and uh, I'll give you a little background so you understand the context. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse number one, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you always, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, Not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, today I pray that as we open up your word, you will open up our hearts. I pray, God, you will do an incredible work of grace in this sanctuary today, that there will be an anointing of the Holy Spirit, that the word of God will be sounded forth this morning, that it will ring true in our hearts and lives, that it will increase that expectancy within each and every one of us. And I pray, God, if there's anyone in the house today who is not yet ready that before they leave they'll make their peace with you we love you god we thank you for this incredible word today and we give you praise and glory in jesus name amen turn to someone look them in the eye and say are you ready and then you may be be seated Now, let me start by giving you a little bit of background this morning. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy were the ones who planted this church in this Greek city of Thessalonica. It was about AD 50 when they went there, and uh, it was in the area of Macedonia at that time. Now you can find it in northern Greece. They're on their second missionary journey when they're traveling around. And uh, let me give you just a little backdrop and back up one city. Uh, Paul gets to Troas and he, he was going to go into Asia, but every time he got ready to go somewhere, the Bible said, and the Holy Spirit stopped him. How many knows the, know the Holy Spirit can say no just as well as he can say yes? And, and he stopped him. He put those roadblocks up. He says, you're not supposed to go here. And so he has a vision. In fact, listen, I want you to come tonight. We're going to talk about visions and a vision from God. And getting a vision of God for this church. So do not miss it tonight at 6 o'clock right here. I'm just going to teach the word. We're going to open it up. We're going to look at Nehemiah a little bit tonight. Uh, I want you to come. But anyway, back to Paul's vision. He gets a vision and he sees a man over in Macedonia. Uh, I don't know what he's doing. Kind of waving his arm maybe or whatever. But he says, come over here. Come over here. And so Paul says, okay, that's God. He gets on a boat. They travel over. And the first city they land at in uh, Macedonia is Philippi. 
And they get to Philippi, and there was a man, remember, waving his arm. When he gets to Philippi, he finds a lady's Bible study. It's just a bunch of women. I don't know where the man was. You're going to find out in a little bit where the man was. But there's, there's ladies because there's not enough uh, Jewish men to have a synagogue. And so the ladies are Jews and they're down by the river. And Lydia's down there. And Lydia gets saved. And she's a rich lady. And so she's going to help finance the Apostle Paul and his ministry while he's in the city of Philippi. And that's one of his very first converts. And he gets into the city of Philippi. And remember that demon-possessed girl that followed him around wherever he went? And finally, Paul had enough of it. And he said, okay, that's enough. Devils, get out of there. The devils came out of that girl, and she is set free. And now the idol worshipers, they're mad because she was like the main fortune teller. She was the one who attracted all the business to buy the idols and says, you've ruined us. You've ruined our business. They create a riot. They arrest the apostle Paul. They have him beaten. And he and Silas are beaten, and they are thrown in stocks in a Philippian jail. And that's where they're going to stay. Of course, you know the story. They start singing and praising the Lord and worshiping. And about midnight, the, the, the earthquake comes and the prison bars are thrust open and Paul and Silas walks out. And then there's a man, there's a guard who's been listening to all this and he is about to take his own life because he thinks his prisoners have escaped. Now that may have been the jailer who was waving him on. Please come on over here to Macedonia. Please come on over this way. Maybe that's the guy he saw in his vision. But whoever it was, he runs across this man. He's about to take his life. And, and they say, do yourself no harm. We're all here. We're all hanging around. He leads the jailer to the Lord. His family gets saved. And by the way, they're all baptized in water right then on the spot. Incredible. And so they release him and they let him out and uh, he is going to go. But now the, the Jews begin to stir up trouble and so he's got to leave Philippi. And he goes from there and he travels about 100 miles to the next city of Thessalonica. And he journeys there and the Bible says, and you can read all about this in Acts chapter 17, that he taught in the synagogue for a span of about three Sabbaths. So for three weeks, he teaches in the synagogue. And it says in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks. This is, by the way, a Greek province. It was now a free city. And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And, and so once again, God begins to move and people are getting saved in this brand new city of Thessalonica. And the Jews come along, the Judaizers, and they begin to stir up trouble again. And so they stir up trouble. They create another riot. They go to the house where Paul had been reported to be staying at, although he wasn't there at the time. And they find Jason. And they drag him out into the middle of the streets. And they question him, where is Paul? What's going on here? What are you doing harboring this fugitive? And they create this whole big kind of riot all over again. And so the Bible says the brethren come along and they slip Paul and Silas and possibly Timothy out by night. And they take off and leave. Now, they're there just a very, very brief time. When they get to the city of Corinth, they're going to write back and write letters to this brand new early church in Thessalonica. And that's what we have now in the word of God. Now, I had the privilege, and some of you guys went with us. We went to Macedonia, and we built a church. That was one of the neatest missionary trips we took. And we were in Macedonia, and so for our free day at the end of building the, the thing, we went to Thessalonica, and we traveled on through Greece, now in northern Greece, and we went there, and we went through all these ruins. And so we actually saw the city where the Apostle Paul might have walked, and we saw all these ruins. Of course, it's, it's all rubble in the ground, and you could see where the areas, the bathhouses were. You could see where the idols were worshipped. You could see where they lived, and, and you get a whole framework of, of the city of Thessalonica. And, and I've got to, I got to see those ruins, and about 30-some uh, other people from the church saw the very same thing. Thessalonica was a very prosperous, populous, important city. An incredibly important city in this day. It was on one of the main routes uh, that the Romans would travel along. But it was also a very sexually immoral city. They worshipped every kind of idol you can imagine. They would worship statues that were built and designed like sexual organs. 
And they worshiped before these organs. There was drunkenness in the city. They engaged in all kinds of sexual perversion. In fact, Paul addresses that a little bit later in the letter, and we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. And now... Paul is forced to flee. He's only been there a few weeks. Now, he was in the synagogue three weeks. He might have stayed a little bit longer, but he was only there a short time. He leaves a handful of believers, and they are right smack in the middle of this very pagan culture and a very pagan city, very idol-worshiping city. And he settles down. He goes from there to Corinth, and then he writes First and Second Thessalonians. Now, the incredible thing about this letter, about these two letters, is every chapter, the first Thessalonians, ends with a, with a statement about the Lord returning, the Lord coming back. And then you get to second Thessalonians, uh, and when you get to that, he uses some very unusual phrases. He talks about the great apostasy, or the falling away. He talks about the man of sin, that that God could not have come back yet because the man of sin has not yet been revealed. You see, the persecution begins to intensify in Thessalonica, and they think, you know what? Maybe the Lord's come back and we missed it. Maybe the date's already come and gone. And he writes them and says, this could not have happened because the man of sin, the one has not yet been revealed, uh, and, and that which holds him back and restrains has not yet been taken out of the way. And so you see those kinds of phrases, the manifestation of Christ's coming, the mystery of lawlessness. Uh, and, and what happens is Paul begins to prepare, listen to me, the early church for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to be watching and ready and looking because in Paul's mind, in the New Testament church, Christ could come back in any moment. Now listen to me. That was 2,000 years, years ago. I want to tell you we are much closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ than at any other time in history. And if he wants them to be ready and watching and looking, how much more do we need to be looking and watching and ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? He could come back at any day. All of Paul's teaching, all of Peter's teaching in First and Second Peter is designed to prepare us and get us ready for our home going, the return of the Lord. Are you ready? Now, now the problem is there are some, this is on tape, I got to say this kindly, but there are some nuts out there, maybe that's a kind way to say it, who said, you know what, I can tell you what day he's coming back. And he picked a date on the calendar, it was just a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, May the 21st, that the Lord was supposed to come back. He's on the radio, he he's, he's a, has a wide audience out there, media coverage, all this kind of thing. Uh, we had gone down to... Uh, Colorado, Grand Junction, Colorado, because my son was getting married on Saturday, and so we were there to celebrate, and, uh, and we get the USA Today, I get that free copy every morning at my motel room, and I, and I open up, and big, full page, and I, I should have ripped it out and brought it, but I, forget, I didn't think about it till now, but full page ad, get ready, the Lord's coming back May 21st. Now, my, my son who was getting married looked at that and he was getting married on May 21st. And he said, you know what? It would be great if God could wait one more day. <laughs> he's, he's got a weird sense of humor. You got to really know him. <laughs> and the problem is with this kind of nonsense, it gives the church, it gives believers, people from the outside who don't understand, people who are not saved, look at this and think we're pure idiots. And it gives us, in some respects, a bad name. Now, here's the ironic thing. Someone told me recently, he set a new date. It's October 21st. You, you would just want to say, how gullible can people be? And he's, I understand he's pulled this before. The Jehovah's Witness had five different dates set for the return of the Lord. And every time he didn't come back on, the people sold everything. They got on top of their roofs. They looked for the return of the Lord. They, they thought he's going to come back on this day and then on that day. And, and the, he's, he's going to come back on a certain time or day. And so they kept rechanging the date. 
And, the first, and they would explain it away. Well, the, he did come back, but it was a spiritual coming. We didn't see him. He just came spiritually. He just appeared in the spirit somewhere, and he came back that day, but that wasn't the real day. The real day is still yet to come. There, there's, a, there's a Greek word for that, baloney. Say, say that with me, baloney. But the danger is, listen to me, the danger is this kind of teaching can lull people to sleep because they think they've got it all figured out. And the Lord says in his word, no man knows the day or the hour because he wants us to always be watching, always be ready, always be prepared for the return of the Lord. In the day you think not, in the, in the, you need to be ready, watching, looking. He wants us always to be ready for the return of the Lord. Now, My question to you this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready for the Lord to come back? Are you ready? Now, we're going to do, we're going to check your vital signs today. I'm going to give you three vital signs to see how ready you really are for the return of the Lord. And so I need a volunteer this morning. Thank you, Pastor Craig. Come on up. We're going to check your vital signs today, and we're going to determine just what, how healthy he really is. And so we'll see. So take your jacket off, if you would, over there for just a moment, sir. And uh, we'll start with this one. This is a thermometer. This is going to check his temperature. Very important because your temperature tells you if your body has infection, is fighting off anything. And so we'll take this out, and we'll push this little button here and uh, stick that right there in your mouth. At the same time, I'm going to take your uh, right here. This checks your blood pressure. Very important to know how your blood pressure is going to do. And so we're going to see how healthy you are today. Oh, he's got such muscles, I can't hardly get it up here. My good guy's incredible. What a specimen. Okay, and we're going to push this button right here. Now, don't, you can't talk or touch your thermometer. Okay, start. Stop. Okay. I think it's resetting. Okay. We're going to check this out. We're going to see how it is. Okay. It's working now. We're listening for a beep. I think that's good. 95.5. Kind of cold. The cold guy. Okay. A little afraid of that. This thing's still working right here. Should give us a number, top number, bottom number in a moment, and we'll see if he's got any blood flowing through those veins. And this this checks, this uh, right here, this checks your blood pressure. It allows us to know his veins are all clogged up, how the plumbing is in there, and uh, how his heart's beating, how it's working, and we'll see how healthy he is. And Oh, it gave me two numbers, 142 over 122. He's about to die. Man, he is not ready. Okay, now let me uh, do the final test. I'm going to check his heartbeat. <laughs> we'll get a real doctor to check you out, buddy. Uh, now we're going to check his heartbeat. And uh, this is very important because this lets us know if his heart's beating irregularly uh, or how it's ticking. This also, you can check your lungs with this thing. You can check your uh, kidneys with this thing. You're going to have to be quiet. I'm really having trouble picking this up. Okay. I have bad news. You have no heart, buddy. He's got no heart. That's good. Give him a hand. Uh, We don't know if he's going to make it or not. But anyway, those are his vital signs. And we really got to look hard to find a heart somewhere for that guy. Vital signs. Three vital signs I want to give you this morning. Jot these down. Number one, ask yourself these questions. Have you turned? Have you turned? Look at verse number nine again. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had with you. And how you, everybody say that word together, turned, say turned, turned to God from idols 
to serve the living and true God. Now, now listen, when the Thessalonians turned away from idolatry, when they turned away from their idols, away from Mount Olympus. By the way, Mount Olympus was 50 miles to the south of Thessalonica. In fact, when we went to see the ruins, you could see the mountain right off in the distance, this huge Mount Olympus. And that's where they believe their Greek gods lived and they were born and that was where they all came from, was Mount Olympus. And so uh, when they turned from Mount Olympus, when they turned from those idols to serve the living and true God, it set a, a seismic shock that reverberated throughout the entire region. And Paul writes, the word is already spreading about you Thessalonians, how you have turned to God from idols. Now, now let's look at the word first of all, turned. Write that down. It's not simply, say this is your idol right here. It's not simply just doing a half turn or looking away, but it's a 180 degree turn. It means to turn your back on it. It means to totally turn away and renounce it. It's the same idea of the word repentance. Remember I've talked about repentance before. Repentance is I'm going one direction. Literally means it's, it's metanoia. It means to change the mind. And so you change the mind so much to the point that it changed your lifestyle. It changes the way you live. And so you do a 180 and you leave behind that which you've left. If you turn away, do a 180. And then notice second, it says turn to God. Turn to God. Now, this is very important, the order here. Notice, let's look at it again. You turn to God from idols. To God is first. In other words, the secret of getting victory over idolatry is to turn to God first. First. You, you see, many people say, well, I'll get right with God when I get rid of all my idols. Get rid of all my sin. Get rid of all the junk in my life. When I clean myself up, when I become spiritually presentable, then I'll give myself over to God. Listen, I've got news for you. There is no way you can straighten up without God. You can't do it without him. You can't reform yourself. You can't change yourself. You cannot do it without the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You can't stop swearing. You can't stop drinking. You can't stop smoking. You can't stop gambling. You can't stop cheating. You can't stop lying. You can't stop saying the pastor preaches too long. Where'd that one come from? That just popped out. You can't stop doing that stuff without God. It starts with him. But however, if we first turn to the Lord, you will then be able to leave your idols behind. You see, the issue is not improving your behavior. The issue is turning to God. Turn it over to the Lord. Turn to God. Listen to Romans 3, 28. For we we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Justification is not about observing the law. It's about turning to God. Christ is the way to holiness. Now, the third point is this. Not only do you turn a 180 to God, but then he says in the next phrase, away from your idols. You see, uh, you turn to God away from your idols. Now, at this point, some of you guys are just kind of zoning out because, you know what, I don't, we don't have idols. I don't have any statues in my house. Thessalonica, they had idols on every single house, every street corner. They marked the idols where the prostitutes hung out, and they were very lewd, vulgar idols, and they had them all throughout the city of Thessalonica. So everywhere you turned, there was another idol to look at or catch your eye. But let me tell you something. America, I believe, is one of the most idolatrous nations in the world. We don't have our Buddhist statues per se, and we may not have a lot of the assortment of idols they have in India. The Hindus have uh, 200,000 plus gods. We don't have maybe those kinds of statues and idols or their representations of God. But I believe America is one of the most idolatrous nations on the face of the earth. Man had come over to visit America from another country. 
and he went back to his homeland and he was asked if Americans worshipped idols. And he said, yes, they do. They have three of them. In the winter, they worship a fat man in a red suit. In the spring, they reverence a rabbit. And in the fall, they sacrifice a turkey. (laughs) Unfortunately, we have a lot more idols than just three. Idolatrous nation. Let me tell you what an idol is. An idol is literally a God substitute. A God substitute. Anything that takes the place of God in your life becomes an idol. And the possibilities are endless because every heart has an altar inside of it. In other words, you were built and created by God to worship. You were created as a worshiper. So man will worship something. And if it's not God, he will find a God substitute that he gives his time, his money, his allegiance to. God substitute. Whether it's a lover, whether it's a Lexus, whether it's your labor, whether it's your leisure time, it's a God substitute. Now, notice he says they turn to God from idols, and then he adds the phrase to serve the true and living God. He's trying to differentiate God from idols. And he's trying to say, an idol's dead. An idol's lifeless. An idol can't do anything. Why would anybody choose an idol over the true and living God? God is real and God is alive. An idol An idol's lifeless. An idol's dead. God is living. He is risen from the dead. Uh, Idols are unreal. God is true or real or genuine. And therefore, idols are unable to help you. But God is almighty and he is eager to help. Why? Doesn't even make sense. Turn to uh, Psalm 135. Just Just a quick verse. Listen to the way the psalmist says this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. You want direction in your life? Your money will never give it to you. Your job will never give it to you. Your friends can't do it. Eyes they have, but they do not see. Ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. Spiritual checkup. The first thing we've got to ask ourselves is, have you turned to God away from all of your idols? You see, what we try to do sometimes in America is we try to add Jesus to our collection of idols. I have shared this before, but when I went to India, I was in for a shock because I went into their little prayer rooms in the Hindu homes uh, and I saw all their, they they have whole walls lined up for their gods and they have all these statues across there and I'm looking across the statues and, you know, they stick Mary in there. Everybody's got Mary holding Jesus and then they have a statue of Jesus and they got them in there and so they don't mind accepting Jesus as long as they don't have to give up the rest of their idols. And and isn't that kind of way we do in America today? Uh, Oh, Jesus, I had him on Sunday. I'll talk about Jesus once in a while. I'll mention him, but I'll live my life. I'll spend my time just like I want to. Boy, it's quiet in here now. Help me, somebody, help me. Help me, help me, help me. You see, we want to add Jesus to everything else we're already doing. But conversions involves a radical transfer of allegiance. That my heart, my life, my soul, my all, my everything, it's Jesus. It all belongs to him. All my money, everything I have, my family, it's all given to God. Listen to Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, let alone three, four, five, or six. Just let's start with two. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. Amazing that he calls money can be one of our idols. Prosperity, stuff, is probably one of the greatest idols in America 
today. Listen, if we really believe Jesus Christ, listen to me, is going to return soon. If we really believe and are living with that expectancy that he could come back at any time, we're not going to love this world. We're going to love the world to come. And our heart and our affection and everything about our lives is being drawn there. And instead of building treasure on the earth, we're laying up treasure in heaven. See, that, this is a vital sign to check. See if you're ready. Number two, the the second vital sign is, are you serving? He goes on to verse number nine to say, you uh, turn to God from idols. And then he says to serve, everybody say to serve, to serve the true and living God. You see, true conversion is not just setting you free to live irresponsibly and do as you please with no accountability. Simply turning from idols is not sufficient to help if you don't serve to turn to serve the living God. If you just try to turn away from your idols uh, and you don't go to serve the living God, you will just find some other demonic influence to follow. There's always got to be a turning to serve. We're saved for a purpose. We're saved for a reason. We're saved to serve. We turn to serve. Verse number eight, look what he said about the Thessalonians. He says, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Now that word for sounded forth refers to a trumpet blast or rolling thunder. It's like blasting out a trumpet. He says, from you Thessalonians, the word of God has gone out like a trumpet blast, uh, like thunder reverberating uh, through those uh, hills in Macedonia. Paul commends the Thessalonians for their faithful proclamation of the gospel. Their efforts were so constant that he says, everywhere I go, I hear about your faith. Isn't that incredible? Everywhere I travel, everywhere I go, I hear about the faith of the Thessalonians. Listen, if we believe Jesus Christ is coming again, we'll be about the business of soul winning. We'll sound it forth. We'll blast it. We'll declare it. Now, if we don't think he's coming back, we'll just kind of hang out and do our own thing. But if we really believe he's coming back, one of the vital signs we need to check out is are we leading souls to Christ? If you really believe that May the 21st was the end, you'd have been on the phone May 20th. You'd have called every family member, every friend, every neighbor, everybody you could think of, and you'd say, get ready, Jesus is coming back. You see, if we live with that continual expectancy, we'll be soul winning. We'll be telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now listen to me. Some people feel that they can't be effective in soul winning unless they've learned a whole lot of the word of God, unless they've gone to seminars on how to lead people to Jesus Christ, uh, unless they've taken special classes, went to Bible school, whatever the case may be. The Thessalonian church, when Paul writes them from the Corinthians, that church is less than one year old. They are an entire church. He says a lot of Greeks received the Lord and a lot of women came to the Lord Jesus Christ. That church is less than one year old when 1 Thessalonians is written. And he says all around Macedonia, it has been sounded forth that everywhere you go, you're telling people about Jesus Christ. You're like like a trumpet declaring Jesus Christ is coming again. Listen. We make it so complicated. All we need to do is tell others of what Jesus Christ has done for us and tell them about the love of God and tell them there's a solution to all their messes in life. You see, some of you say, well, I have a faith, but it's kind of a private faith. My faith is just between me and and God. It's just a deep internal thing. Just me and Jesus walking down the path of life. No one really knows about it. Now listen, it's all right to have a personal, private love relationship with God. But Paul, when he stands before King Agrippa, makes this statement. These things were not done in a corner. These things were not hidden. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. The Thessalonians says it sounded forth. It blasted forth. Uh, The message Paul preached, the message he passed down to us is to be shouted from the rooftops. Jesus Christ loves everybody. 
delivered as a blowing trumpet to be heard in every corner, in every dark place, uh, wherever the dead lie, waiting to be called back to life again. Now, the word here for serve is, is, is the word slave. It's, it can be translated either way. It means slave. It carries the idea of being a slave. And it's in the present tense. And that simply means this. It's a continual activity or lifestyle. I got, a, I got anonymous letters. Some, and I, I read them, but I, there's nothing I can do about it if it's anonymous. I can't call back, can't respond to it. And, 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 uh, but the tenor of the letter, and maybe somebody in here, so, but I, I, don't, I have no idea who you are, so you're safe. Uh, the tenor of the letter said, why do you, why? And I, we were pre- I, I preached on uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet that week. And, and the whole thing is the example I've set for you, you should do also. In other words, you're supposed to serve. And so the letter basically said, why are you talking so much about serving? You're just tired of hearing about serving or service. or ser- I don't know how you get away from it in the word of God. We, we, we were called to turn to God away from idols to serve, present tense, the living God. Now, when I say present tense, it means it's not a one-time action. We, we got all, we, uh, 40 days of community, great, great time, great for the church, learned a lot. And, and uh, we all, every life group found a job to do or a task to do. And you went out and did that and you served the community. But it was never meant to be a one-time event. Never meant to stop because the word service is in the present tense. We are always looking for ways to serve our Lord, to live for him. To give our, our life for him. Uh, and, and so uh, it's, it's continual, ongoing. It's whatever my master wants, that's what I want to do. I am his bond slave. Now, it also carries the idea of being a bond slave. And a bond slave was somebody in the Old Testament who if you could wanted to let your slaves free and you could say, okay, you, the seven years up, you can go free now and your family can go free and you're no longer a slave in this house. And they'd say, Master, I want to stay with you. I love being here. I love the food I get here. I love the accommodations. I love you. And I want to stay right here with you. And they would put uh, an all right through their earlobe to show they were a bond slave. And they would continue to serve out of love just because they love their master and so it is with us we are now bond slaves of the lord we serve not because he makes us or holds a heavy hand over our head but simply because i love my lord and master and i just want to serve him i just want to wait on him i just want to do whatever i can to serve the lord listen to romans chapter 6 uh, verse 17 and 18 he kind of carries this idea but but God be thanked that through you, were, though, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you're free from sin, you've been set free, we're free in Christ Jesus, you became slaves of righteousness. So what we do is when we give our life to Christ, we change masters. I no longer serve my flesh in unrighteousness in sin. Now I am free to serve the Lord out of love. Isn't that an incredible picture? And so we turn to serve. You were saved to serve. Listen, that is why you were saved. Say it one more time. That's why you were saved. That's our calling. That's our purpose. That's why you found Jesus Christ. That's why you're still on this earth. And we serve until the Lord comes back. So, so check your vital sign. Are you, are you serving? Where's your heart? The third thing, third vital sign. I'm doing okay. Are you waiting? Are you waiting? Have you, are you turned? Are you serving? And third, are you are you waiting? Look at verse number 10. And to wait for his son from heaven. Now the word wait there carries the idea of to look forward with patience and confidence. It implies being ready. It's not just hanging out, doing nothing. It implies a readiness. Are you waiting? Now, when you have someone going to come to your house, when you wait for a visitor to come, what you do, ladies, you get the house cleaned up. And so for a, a couple frantic days, you're, you're, you're cleaning the floors and you're cleaning the house and you're changing the sheets on the bed and you're getting all ready. You're getting the guest room ready. You're getting prepared because guests are coming. 
That's the idea the word wait has here. It's a wait with an expectation that it is going to come about. It is actually going to happen. It is a, and, and so you stock the refrigerator and you clean your house and you wait for that guest. So when that guest comes to your house, they feel at home. That's called hospitality. You guys do it great. This is a hospitable church. And you, waiting for the Son of God then implies waiting with a sanctified heart and life. It is waiting in readiness. These new believers in Thessalonica waited with a sense of expectancy for Jesus to return. Listen, when they had worshipped idols, they had no hope. When they worshipped those dead, lifeless gods, for them, it was over, the grave was the end, and they knew everything was futile. But when you serve the living God, because he is living, because he is risen, I shall live also. And so now I have a hope. Now I have an expectancy. Turn to Acts chapter 1. He describes his return. He says in Acts 1 and verse number 9, And when they had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood with them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, say that with me, this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come again in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. This same Jesus. Now, Paul writes to Thessalonians. They are 50 years or, or, or they're, they're removed from this event. I don't know how many years it was since Christ ascended. But they are removed from this event. Most of them were probably never in Jerusalem during that time. They never saw Jesus open a blind eye. They never saw him raise anybody up from the dead. They were not there when Christ was crucified and hung on the cross. They never went to the empty tomb and saw no body there. They were not there when 50 days later he ascended and went up into heaven. And the verse I just read to you, they, they never had a part of that. But they heard with their ears and they believed and they had faith. And so because they heard and believed, they began to serve and wait. Serve and wait. You see, one of the vital signs of a true believer is this great hope within us that quickens our heart. And we begin to think about the return of the Lord, and we get more and more excited. And we start thinking about heaven, and our heart begins to race, and we think, Jesus is coming back. True believers are waiting for his return. Let me give you some quick verses. Look at this uh, description of, of believers and the child of God. Romans 8, 23. Not only that, but we also who have first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Future tense. Eagerly waiting. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 7. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see those same two words again. Look at Philippians 3 and 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who, say this with me, eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin, for salvation. In other words, if you're saved, if you're really saved, you ought to be eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord. This is a vital sign. This is what we check. Is this guy saved or not? Let's put the, let's put the blood pressure cuff on. Let's, let's pump it down. Let's see if he's really eagerly waiting for Christ to come back. It's a sign that I'm saved. There's a longing. My citizenship is not here anymore. I've given my life to Christ, and so now I'm eagerly waiting to go home, be with him, eagerly waiting. These believers were waiting not only for the return of the Lord, but he goes on to say to be rescued from the coming wrath. What's he mean by that? Look at that in verse number 10. To wait for the Son from heaven and be raised from the dead, whom even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Now let me tell you what it is not, first of all. First of all, it's not referring to the persecution the Thessalonians would go through. Now they were about to go through incredible persecution because of their newfound faith in Christ Jesus, and some of them would be killed for their testimony for Christ, and, and the persecution was coming. It was going to be there. It was, it was a Roman province, and the persecution would definitely come to Thessalonica that would sweep across that early church. That's not what he's talking about because they went through that persecution and many of them were killed during that persecution time. He's not talking about hell when he talks about the wrath to come. Although hell is a reality and when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to be delivered from hell. But he's talking about future tense, wrath to come. And we know from the word of God that when the wicked die, immediately they go to a place of torment upon their death. And so he's not talking about that kind of deliverance. He is talking about a specific time period when wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. Delivered from the wrath to come. Uh, It's a reference to a future, unprecedented tribulation period of time. And those who have turned to God will be rescued from this time of coming wrath. Now, this is the theme of 1 Thessalonians. You're going to see it again and again and again. He's going to talk about the wrath to come. He's going to talk about the man of lawlessness. He's going to talk about that which restrains. We're going to get into all that as we get into 2 Thessalonians. Uh, But he says, you, my church, my people, are going to be delivered from the coming wrath. Now, listen, most Americans don't want to hear anything about God's wrath. They want to talk about love. There's a book out now about love conquers all. And it's a bunch of nonsense. And somehow it says that if you just, if you live on the earth, everybody's going to be saved. It's called universalism. Everybody makes it. There's no accountability. There's no, you don't have to believe in Jesus. Just everybody is going to make it because God loves. And there's something that says, you know what? I don't want to hear about that side of God. But over and over again in the word, God is also a God of love and mercy and grace, but he is also a God of justice. He is a God of holiness. Joel 2, 31, he talks about the terrible day of the Lord. There is a time when God's judgments are going to be poured out upon this earth. Read Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19, and you see God pouring out his wrath in that great and terrible day of the Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, you see, that's in God's word too. You can't take the love part without and cut Romans out. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Listen to Revelation 14, 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now listen, if you have turned to God away from idols and your life has been changed by his power, the Bible says you will be rescued from the wrath to come. That's the good news. That's exactly what he told the Thessalonians. You've turned to God away from idols. You're following God. You're serving the living and true God. And therefore, you Thessalonians are going to be delivered from the coming wrath. If you have not been converted, then you will be left behind. When Christ returns and you will face that terrible day of the Lord. So it's time to check your vital signs. Let's do this diagnostic test for every one of you right now. Do it with me. Do that diagnostic test mentally in your mind. Have you turned? Have you turned to God? Have you asked him to come into your heart and into your life? Have you turned to God and left your idols behind and your sins behind and your past behind? Is God your consuming passion? Check your vital signs. Are you serving the Lord? Are you so excited about Jesus you want to tell everybody you see about the love and goodness and grace of God? Number three, are you waiting and watching and looking and ready? Listen, it's time to allow God to begin to change you Ask yourself, what idols are getting in the way of my life? 
What are those idols that are still out there? What are those things that are holding me back? I want to challenge you, church, listen to me. Put your trust in the Lord completely. Accept his free gift of everlasting life. There was a, there was a fierce battle raging during the Civil War in the 1860s. General Sherman was leading his march. He was leading the northern troops on a path that went from Chattanooga down to Atlanta. And eventually he would make his way to the ocean. And General Sherman in his march, that march was so devastating that he was burning every town, every village, everything in his path. It was just a total cutting the south right in two as General Sherman's march. There was a strategic battle that took place at Fort Altoona. The Confederates under the command of Captain Hood knew the North would be coming by that fort and there they would receive more men and more supplies to continue their march through Atlanta and then on to the ocean. And so Captain Hood says, I'm going to attack Fort Altoona. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to take that fort over now before the Northern Army gets down here. And so they laid siege to that fort and they proceeded to attack and batter that fort. General Sherman was just now coming down and getting close to the fort, and he was up on the higher ground overlooking the fort. And word came to General Sherman from inside the fort uh, that they were running out of supplies uh, and men were being killed, uh, and they were in a very desperate situation. General Sherman set back word, and they used reflective mirrors, and they, 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 they shine that mirror back and forth against the sun, and they set back this word using that mirror, and General Sherman made this statement to those who were in the fort. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Listen, the Christian life we are in is a warfare. We are in a serious battle for the souls of men and women. And the message from the captain of our salvation uh, comes to us today. I'm coming. I'm coming. Uh, hold on. Hang on. Uh, don't give up. And if you're going to be ready, turn to God from idols. Serve the living and true God. And watch and wait for his soon return. Uh, hold on. For I am coming thanks for listening for more check out faithishere.org